Lord, we, we invite you. We pray by your Holy Spirit you would come. Speak to our hearts and to our minds. And God, for those here this morning that are asleep in their faith, that, that perhaps that passion for God has been replaced with passion for other things. Please remind us of the cross. Please remind us of what you sacrificed for us. And our brief and momentary troubles and trials and whatever we go through, Lord, is but a glimpse of this life, but is not the promise. The promise is for life after this. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd come. Speak, challenge, convict, comfort, whatever it would be, Lord. We just submit ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, good morning. Not that one. My uh, slide. Since we have that up there, um, starting next week, we're starting a new series called Fake News. Uh, it's a topical series looking at some challenging topics within Christianity and culture. And it's going to be a great series to invite friends to because we're going to have some fun. Uh, this series, this past one's more like a hymn. This next one's a little more rock and roll. So uh, uh, it'll be a lot of fun. And that's starting next Sunday, uh, a new series called Fake News. Now, we're going to go back to my uh, sermon. We've been uh, walking through the Beatitudes for the last eight weeks, and this morning we're going to wrap this puppy up. Uh, We've been looking at what the Beatitudes can teach us today and what Jesus meant by them. But let's recap what we talked about last week. Last week, we looked at this idea of a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We looked at this this concept of peacemaker, and we realized that um, Jesus isn't just talking about those who bring peace and hostility, but it's a spiritual peace. It's a reconciliation that what he's talking about. Uh, We looked at this quote from Rick Calvert. The peacemaker of whom Christ refers is not one who settles disagreements and dispute of others. This beatitude is a passage on reconciliation and sonship to God and involves a biblical premise with peace with God. We talked about this idea that in this idea of, uh, of a peacemaker, directly connected to that is the right to be called a child of God. And a child of God is a special term. We looked at it in uh, Galatians 4, but we realized that there's other applications of it. But in Galatians chapter 4, Paul writing to the church in Galatians said this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Remember, we looked at the first century idea of, of adoption. Remember, in, in, in the Roman Empire... That if you were a male but didn't have any heirs, that you would look to, your, the, to the slaves that you owned and you would pick one, the one that you thought was the brightest, the one that you thought would carry on your name, and you would adopt them to be your son so that when you passed, up, passed away, your property, your name, your rights would be transferred to this person. And so when Paul uses this phrase, adoption to sonship, the early church knew exactly what he was referring to. He was saying that at one point in time, you were a slave. You were a slave to saying, you were a slave to all these desires in your life, but then suddenly you get transformed into a child of God. Could you imagine that slave who is working at a household for how, however many years they are? All of a sudden, the owner of the house comes, the, the, this, the, the, the patriarch of the house comes to you and says, today you are now going to become my son, my adopted son. So stop doing these duties. Now, under, now all my riches, all my name, all of that is now transferred to you. And so in this last beatitude, we saw this idea that peacemaker and, and, and child of God were directly connected. And then we also talked about how in the, in, in the early church, names meant something, right? Names meant something. 
somewhat today, but not as much, more like corporate names or, or uh, product names. But back then, names of families meant something. And so the ability to say that you were a child of God meant that you were a person that was helping other people have peace with God. We wrapped up by looking at 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, listen, very important here, right? That as you go out into this world, as you interact with people, you are the only Jesus these people will ever meet. You are the only truth, you are the only light that some of them will ever meet to make sure that you are living your life and acting and behaving in such a way that you don't bring discredit to Jesus, but instead that you are helping them to understand what peace with God looks like. And I, I confess to you that today, especially in the culture that we are living in, um, I have very interesting conversations with people who are not Christians, who are, are different parts, uh, of different journeys, of, and they are always... Um, the questions we have uh, back and forth is always interesting, especially as I deliver milk on, uh, and I meet these people and they say, so do you, do you work full time as a milkman? I'm like, no, I don't. What else do you do? Well, funny you should ask. I'm a minister. I'm a pastor. And they're like, a, a milk delivering pastor? I'm like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of the first of my kind, but not the last. Um, but the idea is that then we have this conversation. It's interesting because, you know, they may never walk, go to a church. They may never feel that comfort to go to a church. But here they have this person who's a Christian, who's a pastor. They get to start asking these really interesting conversations. Like, why do you guys do this? And why that? And, and then so, oh, it's a really interesting conversation. One place, um, I, I delivered milk to, I literally sat there for like 45 minutes with the person in the back there talking about the gospel. Because they had this idea of Christianity that was so bizarre. It was so angry. They had been taught their entire life that God was mad at them, that God was angry, and, and that, that God hates everybody and hates these people and hates those people. And, and it's like, oh, okay. And so we started unpacking that, unpacking that. And by the end of it, she was crying, and I'm like feeling kind of weird. Why is a milkman making the receiving person cry? It was, but it worked out. It was okay. But the, it, it, this is what we are called to. We are meant to have... To, to let our, live our lives in such a way that we are reconciling this world to God and not pushing people further away. That's what we talked about last week. And this week, we are going to wrap this puppy up because looking at the final beatitude and, uh, and we're going to kind of talk about the implications. And as I said to you, I'm going to put it all together now and show you what Jesus was trying to teach, right? The beatitudes aren't just these proverbs, these fortune cookies, blessed are, Right? This entire uh, journey has been walking through the steps of what it means to be a Christ follower. And the final step that Jesus gives to us is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the interesting thing about the language of this final beatitude is it's, it ends like it began. Right? This last beatitude reverts to the first. The first beatitude states the condition of becoming a citizen of the kingdom. And the last describes the character of one who has become a citizen. And being in it is exposed to all of the opposition, persecution, and scorn for the cause of righteousness. Remember, we started off this journey by saying this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I said to you that in that stance, in that posture, that spiritual posture, is this reality that's saying you must first release and let go of everything before you can fully embrace Jesus. And now Jesus ends off the Beatitudes with the same phraseology, this fr- the same idea of blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, not because you're a jerk, but for righteousness, for standing up for Christ. And he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
So we see here seven steps, seven realities of what it means to be a Christ follower. And he's, he's ending it at the, at, at the way uh, um, of what's his promise. At the end of the Beatitudes lies persecution in this life. Now, what is persecution? It's an interesting concept. And you saw the video there. But if some of you um, ever had to take a look at Amnesty International or, or different organizations like that, what is interesting about these organizations is they're actually starting to talk about persecution of Christians around the world. And what is interesting is to make it to these lists, you know it must be bad, right? Because it's almost commonplace. It's almost weekly. We hear about a church being burned, about Christians being burned, about a village that is, that is Christians being killed. Why? Because the violence, the level of violence uh, and, and nationalism around the world is, is amping up to, in such a way that Christians are bearing the brunt of it. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that other people aren't being persecuted as well too. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, according to recent statistics, more people have died for Christianity in the last 50 years than in the last 500 years, which is astounding if you think about it. Because if, if, we, if we listen to the narrative of culture, then we are told that things are getting better and peaceful and, 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 and we're all getting along. Well, that may be the narrative in North American culture and Western culture, but it's not the narrative across the world. And uh, in your bulletins, I actually have in the UCC thought just some statistics from what's called Open Doors. Open Doors is an organization that looks at Christian persecution around the world. And please take a look at it. So what is the point of persecution? Persecution is a purifying process for the believer. But the previous steps have prepared the disciple for this eventuality. So what does persecution really do? Persecution really says this. Do you believe in this? And what are you willing to suffer for this? That's what persecution is. And this is why, and we talk about this all the time, this is why the North American church feels ineffective. Because when we, as soon as we start having people look at us in a different way, oh, you're one of those. Oh, you believe that. It's all saying, oh, well, well no, no, not really. I'm not one of those. It's, it, we become, we, we step back and say, well, I, I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to be that, right? So what does it look like, right? So the Bible tells us that persecution is a final stage, the final development that takes place in the life of a Christ follower. And this is the final way that we look at the, these blessings, right? And again, remember we talked about how the blessings are the oh no, aha moment, right? The Beatitudes are the oh no, blessed are the poor, oh no, for there's the kingdom of heaven, aha, well, in this one as well, that absolutely plays out. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Oh, no. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Aha. Right? So in each beatitude, there is this tension that Jesus is teaching that pulls us in opposite directions. That the first part is, this is the reality. The second part is, this is the benefit if you are able to maintain, sustain the first part. And then this last one, we are told that... Um, Persecution is the final blessing for believers. Those who live righteously will inevitably be persecuted for it. Godliness generates hostility and antagonism from the world. The crowning feature of the happy person is persecution. Kingdom people are rejected people. Holy people are singularly blessed, but they pay a price for it. You saw that video there of Peter and, and the place that he was talking about was Eritrea. But I have uh, the opportunity of talking to missionaries around the world and, um, and, and, and reading these stories. And what is amazing to me is what these individuals go through. And all they have to do to get out of it, to stop the, 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 the torture, just don't talk about Jesus. Just renounce Jesus. That's it. 
And for us, it feels like a very, right? But these individuals in the midst of it, some of these people have left families, have left religions, have left contexts, and they have embraced Jesus, and they will not release that for anything, even at the cost of their own life. For six years, this young man was tortured, and every, like, like, like monthly, dragged into the office saying, okay, sign this piece of paper that you'll never talk about Jesus again. Like, like six months in a darkened room, six months, like, like loss of eyesight, uh, you know, like your atrophy of your muscles. And all you can do, all you have to do to get rid of that suffering is renounce Jesus. That's it. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. And walked 200 kilometers to uh, a refugee camp to finally find some peace. And at 40 years old, he realized that last six years, he could never get back for training, for job, and like his life. But again, I've lost everything, but I have Jesus. See, at the end of this journey of Christ-likeness, if you've gone through the steps, and again, we'll get to that in a moment, you realize that by the time you reach this last step, there is nothing that you will give Jesus up for. There is no pleasure. There is no person. There's no relationship. There's no fame. There's no fortune. There is nothing that you will give Jesus up for. It's like when we see that story in the Old Testament of, the two brothers, right? And the bowl of soup, right? You know, Esau, right? And, 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 and uh, his brother there, they come in, right? And he's like, he's really, he's really hungry and he wants a bowl of soup, right? And he gives his birthright up for the bowl of soup. And I love how Andy Stanley talks about that. He says that, you know, every person has a bowl of soup, right? That we change, we, we, we give over our lives, we give over our, our, our faith to this bowl of soup. And you say to yourself, well, the bowl of soup seems dumb. Whatever you give Jesus up for is dumb. Right, whatever you give Jesus up for is dumb because it is only temporary, not eternal. Right, and so when we talk about persecution, we talk about this idea. We can we can talk about it in such a way that we elevate it. Right, we can talk about it in such a way that says, "Oh, you know, it's it, it happens." But we all know it happens in our own lives, and it may not even just be persecution. It could be troubles in our own life. It could be decisions we've made. It could be circumstances that are happening right now, and the questions that well up within us: Did God? You know, did, is God with me? Has he forgotten me? I love how uh, Peter talks about this, right? In his letter, uh, in First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it says this. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, if you recall, a few months back, I talked about Peter and I talked about his letters. First Peter, after he wrote it, he got arrested. And he wrote Second Peter in prison. And at the end of Second Peter, he was killed with Paul in the Neronian persecution. Historians say that uh, Peter and Paul and some of the early uh, apostles were killed in the first round of persecution of the church. So when Peter's writing this, he has no idea, but I think he has some idea. Because these Christians are all over the Roman Empire and they're causing a ruckus. And the ruckus is simply this, the emperor is not God. These deities you worship, they're not God. But let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what he's done in my life. And so Peter's writing this letter. And I love that phrase he uses there. Do not be surprised. Because how do we act when persecution and bad things happen? Surprised. What? What do you mean I've lost a job? What do you mean I've lost a relationship? What do you mean this is going to happen? What do you mean my health isn't perfect? What do you mean that this is, this is the outcome? We are astounded that this happens. Why? Because we've been told a lie. And sometimes within church is that if you follow God, all things work out right? All things work for good. And we go, oh, well, that means everything's good. No, no. All things work for good. And what is good? What is blessed? To be persecuted. According to God, according to Jesus, 
Blessed are you when you are persecuted. There is a blessing to those who are able to maintain their faith in the midst of that persecution. And so when Peter writes it, he says, don't be surprised. And this is a theme that happens throughout the early writings is because this is exactly the context of it's taking place. When you look at the Beatitudes, there's a stark contrast to the Old Testament. Remember I said to you two weeks ago that the Beatitudes are this group of teachings that we don't talk about a lot because they're very unpopular, right? We like the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments we'll put out in public because we like that because it's a law and we can abide by it. But the Beatitudes, the Ten Commandments might be a hammer. The Beatitudes is more like heart surgery. It gets inside of who we are and it doesn't allow us to, to, uh, to kind of be evasive. The Ten Commandments gives us the thou shalt not, right? And we kind of like that because it doesn't really tell us what we can do. Just don't do this, but everything else, yeah, yeah, right? We can hide. And when Jesus comes, when he teaches, when he starts off Matthew 5, remember, this is his opening uh, salvo of his teaching to the culture. He's teaching a group of Jewish people who know the Decalogue, the Torah. They know the law. And Jesus says, listen, You know the law, but your heart's still far from God. This inside life is still, you're you're deceiving yourselves. And then he gives us the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes say this. Now, the Beatitudes gives us the blessed are you if you, right? So the Old Testament gives us don't do this. And it it carves us the, the boundaries, and that's important. But then Beatitudes says blessed are when you, and it releases us into a life that's different. Right? And so there's a very stark contrast between the two. Now here's a question really the Beatitudes answers. What does a Christian look, behave, and think like? It's actually kind of an interesting question, right? Because as you talk to people, you get a real sense that nobody really knows. Right? And so I have been a Christ follower for many years of my life. Um, ups and downs, absolutely. Um, but I, 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 there's this quote from a book I love. Um, it's by Philip Yancey. The book's called Soul Survivor. If you have not read it, you're looking for some reading. It's fantastic. Philip Yancey starts off the, in, the introduction. And Soul Survivor is a book about people, stories of people who have survived church. That's, that's literally the whole idea of the, of the book. And as a, any pastor or any Christ follower who's been in church for many years, like, I got to read that book. But he starts off and he says this. Throughout my entire Christian life, I have felt like the most conservative amongst liberal and the most liberal amongst conservatives. And it's like, that's how I feel, right? Like, like is there a category that I can place myself? Is there, is there, is there a way of saying, and it's like, no. I, I, when, I, when I teach one way, I'm like, oh, you're a liberal. I don't think so. But then I teach another way, oh, you're a conservative. I'm like, ah. And, and the response I keep saying now, and I've kind of learned this, I'm like, I'm just trying to be biblical. I, I don't know what the culture is looking at, like. I don't know how people look at me. I'm just trying to be true to scripture. That's what I'm trying to be. And so whether it makes me liberal or conservative, I don't even know anymore. Right? I, 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 I can't even figure out the label to place upon myself, but the label I am trying to apply myself to is this idea of what does the Bible say? And so in Soul Survivor, Philip Yancey kind of goes through and he tells story after story of individuals who have been hurt by the church, who have been hurt by Christians. And let me be honest, right? That's an entire list. Matter of fact, next week we start the fake news series. That's my first topic, right? Is how do you survive church? And what's, what's church even about? What's it for? Why do we do this on Sunday morning? These kind of questions we're going to answer next week because it's kind of important, right? And so we ask ourselves, what does a Christian look, behave, and think like? The answer we kind of get is, well, what kind of Christian? Presbyterian, Anglican, Pentecostal, Baptist, 
Christian Missionary Alliance. Like there's, there's definitely a spectrum, right? But if that's how we answer the question, then what we're really saying is, well, I act this way, so you can act that way, and it's all the same. And I kind of want to say, is it? Is it really the same? Because I'm not really sure if, if it is actually the same. And, and what are we giving ourselves permission for? So let's go through the Beatitudes, because this is where I summarize the seven steps. And this is where Jesus tells us what a Christian looks like, thinks like, and behaves like. And this is why we don't like the Beatitudes, because the Beatitudes grabs a hold of us as we are wriggling away to, t- to whatever way we want to and says, listen, this is the kingdom of heaven. The reason why Matthew's gospel starts off with the Beatitudes before he gets to the Sermon on the Mount is because he is front-end loading what Jesus expects, how Jesus thinks, what, what he should behave like. So step one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first step. This is the very beginning of what it means to be a Christ follower. We recognize our spiritual poverty and release our pride to receive something greater. I want you to know something. There are people in church who have not gone through step one. And this is not a 12-step program. This is not a seven-step program. This is simply the beginning of the journey of Christ's transformation. And the very first step that you must have, regardless of your past, regardless of your family, and regardless of how many years you've warmed a seat in a church, is you have to release your pride, your arrogance, your ego. If you cannot do that, you cannot embrace a cross. Literally, it's the dying to yourself. This is the first part. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. The only way you come to Jesus is you recognize that you need something greater in your life because what you have is not enough. I've sat and I've talked to many of addicts uh, and, and, and different uh, contexts of my spiritual and my professional life. I've had a chance to talk to people who have addictions of, of, of whichever way. And every addict says the same thing to me. I cannot release this addiction until I come to this point where the pain is greater than the pleasure. Right? That's the turning point for every addict. And they can go through rehabs after rehabs. They can go through 12-step programs after 12-step programs. But it doesn't mean they're going to release their addiction. The only time an addict hits, uh, releases that addiction and gets help is when they hit rock bottom. Rock bottom. And whatever rock bottom looks like, and it's, rock, it's different for everybody. That's how an addict looks at it. Right? But that's the same thing with Christianity. The only way you can embrace Jesus, truly embrace Jesus, is you hit rock bottom. Right? You hit rock bottom, you realize, I, I, I need a savior. I need something greater than myself. So the first step to the kingdom of heaven, the first step to Christ's transformation is first releasing yourself. Second step, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now I need to explain this one for those of you who were not here with us when we talked about this one. By the way, all the sermon series are on the website. Uh, huge thanks to Mitchell, our, our webmaster, who keeps me and reminds me, like, hey, we haven't got your sermon yet. And they're all there, and I'm, I'm one week behind, but they will all be there. The blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Remember, we looked at these two words in the Greek because we had to, right? The blessed are those who mourn comes from the Greek word pentheo. And remember, I said to you that that word is mourning as unto death. In other words, it's the mourning that you have at a funeral service. When someone close to you and something you love is dying, right? And the blessed are those who mourn are the, those who look back at their previous life and just lament at their, how they used to look at the world, at the wasted opportunities, right? This is, what, this is what the mourning looks like. But remember the word comforted. That word is interesting. Why? Because it comes from the word periclesis. Periclesis is the word used for the Holy Spirit, paraclete. 
So the word comforted is not just simply there, there, you know, get better. The comfort is, no, 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 I've got something greater for you. You're mourning because of your past, but I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to show you a better future. Remember we talked about at Uptown Community Church? Your past is not your future. You can make tons of mistakes, and we all do, and we continue to do so. And I'm not trying to say to you that once you embrace Jesus, it doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to be uh, perfect. It just means this, that now you understand the way forward. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Realization of our past haunts us, the wasted opportunities, but God comforts us by his grace, calls us to something greater than him and our past, our future in him, right? Because whenever you embrace Jesus, a part of you, the honest part of you, looks back and goes, I can't believe, I can't believe. But, But Jesus in his grace and his mercy looks at us and says, son and daughter, the most high God. This is your past. This is your future. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Step three, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. We'd looked at the word meek, right? Meek is not weak, right? Meek is the, by the, the very definition of the word is an inner strength that it's a quiet inner strength, right? A quiet determined strength and then a renewed mission, right? The meek will inherit the earth, not the arrogant, not the proud, not the loud, right? The meek. This is a person who the storm goes around. Remember we looked at that one uh, analogy of what meek looks like in the, in, the, in the New Testament? It's the sailor at the helm of a ship that's steering the ship while the storm rages around them. That's meekness. Is a strength in the midst of the storm. Blessed are the meek. It's interesting that Jesus describes a transformed Christ follower as meek. Why? Because a meek person allows the storm to rage, but has the truth within them. You will live your life, you'll have a transformed way of looking at the life, and you can have that, but it doesn't mean that the storm is going to affect you. Blessed are the meek, for what they will inherit the earth. Now, what's interesting about the inherit the earth part, and we talked about this, is it's not that you get the earth, right? Because as we said, we talked about this analogy of that Florida couple that were swimming, and then there's an alligator in their pool. Right, and they, they hop out, right, and then they're, like, oh, they're freaking out. And uh, the, I said to you that this passage doesn't mean that we get this earth because this earth is occupied by somebody, and that's the enemy, the adversary. And so why would you want this earth? And remember we said that this passage is looking towards the future with a new earth, the new heaven, the new earth. But only a meek person will, will inherit that. Why? Because they have a strength, they have a belief that's not moved by culture, by the storm but it's an inner strength that that guides them through what needs to happen, right? That's step four. Step five. No, wait, that's step three. This is step four. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Our appetites are redirected. We are filled with the good of God. Because after everything that's happened, the three steps before this, right? Now what needs to happen is I used to act this way. I used to crave fame and fortune and sex and drugs and all these things. And these things are still with us, of course. But now what happens is we hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's righteousness? Jesus. And we looked at that uh, as well too. So what's our hungers and thirst for, right? Our appetites and our desires are now redirected towards Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What? They will be filled. Do you know the only prayer that God always says yes to is more of him? It's the only one. Consistently throughout scripture. We can ask for money, healing, health, fame, fortune, jobs, relationships, and it's a, 
no, yes, maybe, wait. But the only thing that God will always say yes to is, Lord, I just want more of you. I want to understand you. I want to, I want to be in that relationship. And, and, and Dave, um, when he's leading us through worship, he's trying to impress that upon us, right? The only thing God always says yes to is more of him. And it's a promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What? For they will be filled. Not they might be filled or maybe God say, Meh. no, they will be filled. It's, it, it's a promise that is something kind of astounding when we realize that we always don't know. Like we can pray, we can ask, but we don't know the outcome. We don't. But in this one, the answer is always yes. Step five, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Remember, we talked about this one, that these two are connected together, right? Mercy is the action of the church. What's mercy? Mercy is looking at somebody in suffering and alleviate that, clothing them, feeling that they're hungry, refugees, helping them integrate into our country, seeing people who are, being, who are hurting, like not just spiritually, but just physically. And mercy is the mission of the church. And when it's the mission of the church, historically, it's always been the mission of the church, right up to the first century, right? Even the book of Acts, that when we see the early church trying to figure out and, and, and formulate what it's going to do, it's like, well, we better take care of the widows and orphans because no one else is. And that was one of the hallmarks of being a Christ baller. We know that today that everybody can have that, that, that part of them. And that's fine. I'm not, it used to be uh, localized to Christianity, but now like, everybody has a very philanthropic way of looking at the world. That's okay. But consistently, Christians have had the mission of mercy in the world. And remember we talked about this? That when we are acting merciful, we see God. We see God. When we looked at that quote from Mother Teresa, that as she was in the, in the gutters of Calcutta, helping children and people who were hurting and, and all that, she saw God in the face of these people. Because these were children of God. These were people who were suffering and hurting, who were broken. And she saw God in them. And I said to you that mercy is the action, right? But purity is a reaction. Because what happens? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When we are acting merciful, this purifies us. It's, it's like this scrubbing agent that helps us. And when you act merciful, you're not proud. You don't go to a person who's hungry, well, let me tell you how long I worked and how big my bank account is. You could do that, but you'll be a jerk and you might get punched, right? When you're helping somebody who's merciful, you just look at them and say, listen, how can I help you? What can I do? Right? And that's mercy. But that's also seeing God. Is in that person, in that moment. That's step five. Almost there. Step six. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they be called children of God. We talked about that. We are given our new mission to help those around us to be reconciled to God. This earns us the right to be called children of God. Just to be clear here, you don't have the right to be called a child of God if you are not reconciling, if you're not being peacemakers. This is kind of important. Because we cannot... We cannot we cannot maintain a passive state of faith and expect to be called a child of God. Right? That's very, it's a delicate moment, I get it. I don't do delicate very well, but you get that, right? So what he's saying, the peacemakers are children of God. Those who are helping others be reconciled to God are peacemakers. And finally, we talk about this in a lot, so I'm going to briefly talk about it. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. And finally, as we live like this, we are prepared to encounter hostility. Now let's group this. Let's show, let, me, let me show you what's happening here. Let me show you what Jesus is thinking about. Right? So we have the first four of the Beatitudes. And in the first four, what we see here is the inner transformation. 
These are the four things that need to happen internally before anything happens externally. See, oftentimes we get this wrong. We start saying, this is what you need to do. This is how you act and behave. And what Jesus is saying is, is poor, comfort, meek, hunger. These are internal things that need to take place. These are the transformations that have to, have to happen internally. Right? And so this is the inner transformation of someone who's decided to become like Christ. Right? And so Jesus fronted loads the four of the seven Beatitudes and says, before we do anything, there needs to be a soul renovation that takes place. Because until you get to that point at the end, this needs to be changed and transformed within you. Because now the first time that we talk about action is mercy. And the interesting thing is this is the only beatitude that has physical action. Four have already taken place that are transforming us on the inside. And now the first one that talks about action is mercy. Right? This is the first time. And, and this is actually going to be the only action the Beatitudes talk about. Now, isn't that interesting that Jesus doesn't say, and I need you to do this, and I need you to have this bake sale, and I need you to do this missions trip, or I need you to, like, no, no. The only action that God gives the, Christ, the transformed Christ follower is mercy. Right? Mercy. Because now look what's next. The ambassador who is the peacemaker, right? And this is the gospel orientation. Because we're not trying to tell people to do good things. Because good things aren't enough. Sometimes we make this mistake by saying, you know what? At the very beginning, let's just, let's just do good things. And good things are fine. But it's not Jesus necessarily. So what has to happen in this moment? What has to happen is, is it has to be a gospel orientation. It's like the rudder for the boat. This is what's going to take us wherever we need to go. It's the gospel. And finally, the only promise that's given to us in the Beatitudes is for persecution. And this is refinement. This is refinement. Several years ago, I had a chance to talk to um, a Mormon. It's a good conversation. Um, and I was just, was just curious because well, you may not realize this, but whenever you have more, uh, more missionaries come to your, uh, to your house, um, what you may not realize is that so Mormon young adults, uh, young uh, men and women, are sent on a missionary trip for one year in a different country, different parts of the world. And their job is for one year to uh, evangelize people to Mormonism. And I just want to be clear about something. Mormonism is different than Christianity, and that's a whole different conversation. We'll get to that in the fall. But the idea is this. I talked to somebody who was a, uh, I don't know how I'd describe Basically, he was the individual that was, so when Mormon uh, kids were sent to him, his job was to kind of house them and feed them and all that. So uh, that, that's what it looked like. He said to me, he goes, you know what, Pastor, you don't realize this, but there is a high rate of suicide in Mormon missionaries. And I'm like, Really, he goes, he goes, yeah, just think about it. You send this 18-year-old, 19-year-old to people's houses. They have to knock on the doors. You've all had it happen to you. And they have to talk to you about Mormonism. And what, what's a normal response they get? Door slam. Get out of here. Right? They get a very negative response. Day in, day out, that's what they get. And he says, a lot of these kids actually will hurt themselves or will commit suicide because of this. And I said to him, then why did you do it? There's got to be a better way. And he said, Pastor, something Christians have forgotten. All this persecution, when they come back from the missions trip, nothing's going to shake them from their faith. And I thought to myself, oh, that's brilliant. Because these kids 
day in, day out, are being persecuted for their faith. And either you are going to, a small percentage of them, of course, hurt themselves. We don't want that. But what, they, what the Mormon church realizes is that these kids, when they come back to Utah or wherever they're from, they are now, not that all the Mormons are from Utah, but you get the idea. <laughs> Would that be kind of funny? Anyways, um, but he said that these kids have taken every abuse, every insult, and every Christian trying to convert them. I invite them in. And I have a conversation with them. I love that. No one comes to my door anymore. So uh, that, I've been marked. But anyways, um, he goes, when, we send, when they go back home, they've now faced a year of persecution, of negative, of negative living. It's our boot camp. And when they go back, nothing's going to shake them from their faith because they've experienced everything you can. And you know what? When they go out to the day, they come back in the evening, we talk. We debrief. How's your day? Oh, you wouldn't believe the people. You know, it's like, and, and they talk about it, and the, and, and, and the people are like, okay, let's talk about it. Let's comfort each other. Let's, let's you know, and then it's another the next day. It's brilliant to think about it because what happens is these kids are, 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 are veterans when they come back, right? It's almost opposite to what we do with Christians uh, today. You know, we send them to these camps, these entertainment festivals and all these type of things. We think that this is going to refine them for it. Persecution is what refines us. Right? And that's why these men and women around the world will not release Jesus for anything because they understand. They've given up everything for Jesus. We think in Canada that we can have Jesus and. Jesus and my relationship. Jesus and my job. Jesus and fame. Jesus and fortune. And this is why the Beatitudes are so important because the poor in spirit understands something. It's only Jesus. That's it. That's the beginning. That's why the mission, the comfort, the strength of the meek, the appetites, the hunger, that has to happen at the very beginning. If that doesn't happen, the person's not ready. And the reason why persecution is at the very end is because if you live the first six, the seven happens. And if the seven's not happening, you should be asking yourself why. You should be asking yourself why. Why isn't persecution taking place because of righteousness? And I'm not talking about social media arguments. I'm not talking like, honestly, like, like, like forget that stuff, right? I'm talking about living your faith down. So I'm saying to you, well, why Jesus? Why not all these other religions? You're like, well, this is the reason why. Well, you're just being narrow-minded. You're just, you're just being, and, and again, whatever it would be. And that's when you have a conversation. And the conversation doesn't necessarily mean that person's going to fall to their knees except Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? But the conversation is going to be, now this is what I believe, and I'm not moved from it. I'm not going to modify just to make you happy. I'm not going to modify what I believe just to make the world happy or social media happy. I don't care what celebrity. I don't care what celebrity Christian. I don't care anything. It's Jesus. Only the poor in spirit will have that. And once you've gone through these steps, and again, when I say the word steps, what I really mean to say to you is that as you naturally are drawn towards Jesus, these are what happened. And the early church, remember I told you, um, Augustine and uh, St. Cyprian and, and other early church writers, they looked at this as a ladder. They called it the ladder of, of, um, of sanctification. That as you walked up this ladder, that every rung was one of these. And every time you, you achieved it, you were refined, you were changed, you were transformed. And what they all said the same thing. You cannot jump rungs. The reason is, is because each one flows, is connected to the next right? So like I said to you, come to church, great, be a Christ follower, great, but the mercy piece is where everyone wants to go to, but before you get to that piece, 
You got to go through the inner transformation first. You have to be poor in spirit. You have to mourn. You have to have all of these things, the meek and the hunger, right? Before anything else can happen. Now, I want you to be, my wife tells me, I have a tendency to make grandiose statements, and she's absolutely true. Uh, but she's not right all the time. Just to make sure you, if you talk to her like that, too. But I, I tend to make grandiose statements. I tend to make uh, a little bit too harsher statements. And so I'll say this. You can be a Christ follower, and you can go through these steps. And it doesn't mean mercy's not happening. It, it doesn't mean like, oh, I can't, I, I can't go to that soup kitchen. Or I can't, like, I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not at mercy yet. Mm. Rather than seeing this as a ladder, this is what the early church saw. I actually see this as more of, um, of a buffet or more of an altogether type of a thing. Because you don't know where you're at in this necessarily. But if you release yourself to the Holy Spirit, if you allow the Holy Spirit to work in you, you will see yourself in a different way. The Beatitudes aren't just these statements that Jesus made. He was actually laying out for us in a very interesting way. What, what a person who follows him looks like. And I wanted to show you, but it's it was, like I didn't have enough time, but basically all of Jesus' teachings fall into these seven categories and in the most remarkable way. You show me a parable, you show me a teaching, you show me an encounter, and I'll show you the Beatitudes. And so from Matthew chapter 5 to the very end, it's like Jesus is actually saying, okay, this is what I'm going to teach you, but like every great teacher... You don't just say it, you live it. And what's the last one? Blessed are those who are persecuted. What was the last thing to happen to Jesus? Finally, the world had had enough of this this rabbi, of this prophet from Nazareth. And death was what they gave him. Every one of these, and again, I I could line it up for you, Matthew, especially in Matthew's gospel. Every one of these is the steps that Jesus went through. Not because he had to, but as every good teacher, as every good rabbi, he first lives it out for us so that we can see it as well too. Let me close. At the beginning of the Beatitudes is the cross. At the end, after a last breath, is glory. I want to read to you a passage of scripture from Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17. I had to print it out in big letters so I could read it. Listen to what Paul is saying here, right? Paul is writing to the church in Colossus. And he's trying to help them to understand what it means to be a transformed believer. Listen to what Paul's saying here. And I don't know if you need to close your eyes just to listen to auditory-wise, but just listen to it. Or if you want to get your Bibles out and turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Because it's so interesting. Because it's almost as if Paul is hearkening back to the Beatitudes. And when I was studying the Beatitudes, several times this passage was referenced. So, of course, I have to go read it. It's like, oh... It's right there. So I had to save it to the very end so you can see that this wasn't just something that Jesus had, but that this is something that the early church used. Now listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of, our, of its creator. Here then is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in good word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's so amazing to me that as I look at the New Testament, as I look at the letters, as I look at the life of believers, and I start seeing it through the lens of the Beatitudes, it's all there. It is incredible to me. And I literally could have taught the Beatitudes for another X amount of weeks because there's so much more I haven't gone through with it. And you're like, how much, like, Pastor, you talk for an hour. What else is there, is there right? There's more. There's so much more. And I may have to loop back around to this in a couple of years to kind of review it because I haven't even told you about other stuff that's going on in it. It's, it's amazing. Here's, here's what I'd love for you to do. I would love for each of you, if you want to, to read through the Beatitudes every day this week. But don't just read it. Have a journal, have a book, and start writing down. And just write at the very top, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And just start writing. Start journaling. I did that. And you know the stuff I started writing? Am I poor in spirit? Am I, am I too proud and arrogant? The answer is yes. Pride is my problem, right? And I started writing this. I started getting convicted. It's like, oh, this is, this is me. I'm not, I, I, I'm I'm not poor in spirit. And so I went through each beatitude, and it's painful, I got to tell you. Because the stuff you write down, you're like, oh. Some stuff I'm underlining, sometimes I'm highlighting, I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is painful. But I realized something. These beatitudes, something I read for so many years, heard about, and I passed over them so quickly. Once I paused and started meditating on them, I realized something. That Jesus is trying to tell me, these are the areas in your life that you need to work on. These are the areas that you need to shoot towards. This is Christ-like transformation. What does a Christian look like, behave like, think like? The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. That's what a, uh, that's what a Christian looks, thinks, and behaves like. I know there's all sorts of other things people talk about, but hardly anybody ever talks about the Beatitudes anymore because they're so invasive. They don't allow excuses and they don't leave us alone. They're there for a reason. And I would say to us as a church today that I would, I would say to each of you, every day this week, just get, your, get a journal out. If you don't have one, just go to the dollar store and buy one. But it's, it's amazing what you'll come up with. When you start applying these to your own life, you're like, wow, I didn't realize what was actually in here, what I was actually hiding, what I was actually keeping from everybody else. And I think in that moment, if you just pray the Holy Spirit into that, there's going to be some amazing stuff happen. Let's pray. We do this every week as your heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You know the drill. I want you to think about your Christian, your spiritual life, your faith life. And again, I don't know 
your journeys. I don't know where you're at. But I do know this. The only thing God ever asks from us is progress, to be active. The only thing that God condemns is passivity, right? Lethargy, this, 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 this amazing verse from Ephesians, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, let the light of Christ shine upon you. Are you growing? Are you moving forward? And I, and I say to you that as I was meditating on the Beatitudes, I, need, I realized I need to loop back around to some of them. I'm like, wow. Number one, poor in spirit, I need to make sure I am decreasing so that God may increase in my life. Are you moving forward? Are you growing? Are you developing? And whatever that looks like, however that looks like. And if you're not, if you're honest with yourself, like you can't remember the last time you prayed, like not just, Lord, thank you for this food, but prayer is like, Lord, I want more of you. You can't remember the last time you opened your Bible just to, just to study, just to, just to think, to meditate. You can't remember the last time you and a group of people got together just to talk about the things of the Lord. I would say to you, these are kind of indicators that perhaps maybe there might be a pause in your, in your journey. And I would encourage you to re-engage I love how the scriptures talk about to fan into flame, right? That's, if you've ever gone camping, you know a fire can, can start if there's just a spark. It's a little orange glowing ember. You can rekindle that fire, and some of us, our spiritual eyes look like a gray, cold fire pit. But if we allow the Holy Spirit just to, to breathe new life into that, we can see the passion for the Lord we saw in that video there. Jesus didn't die on the cross. He didn't leave heaven to walk amongst us for us to torture and kill him just so that we could be content with nothing. There is so much more in the spirit, in the life of God. And Lord, forgive us if we have not tried to dig deeper into that. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for each person here. And I pray, Holy Spirit, pray that you would peer deeply into the very darkest places of our spirit, the places that we hide, the places that we the places that we try to deny exist. And I pray, Lord, that your light would penetrate those dark places and bring to light those things that need to be changed to be transformed. I thank you, God, that you are merciful and compassionate. That when you see us fall, when you see us fail, that you pick us up You speak to us tenderly. We mourn, but we are comforted, Lord. I thank you for that. And Lord, I don't want anybody to leave here feeling condemned. That's not the point. But I do pray, Lord, that each one of us would awaken to what you want for us. From the youngest to the oldest, that Lord, that you call us into something more, to something greater, to something beautiful. I pray, God, that's what would be said about us. Regardless of our age, how long we've known Jesus or not, that we would realize, Lord, that there's something more for us. God, carve out in our lives a hunger for you. Lord, we hunger so many things. Money, vacations, food, all these things we hunger. Jesus, please replace those hungers with hunger for you at the very top of everything else. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your son, for your death upon the cross, and that new life that you've given to us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives within us, Lord. I pray that spirit would rise up within us to overflowing in our lives and the worlds we live in as well. Thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you for our time together. I pray, Holy Spirit, you send us in this week that we would meditate on the Beatitudes, we would journal, we would do this, and that you would speak to us in those times. In Jesus' precious name, amen.